probably agree that uh, this message is probably superfluous after what we've seen this morning and uh, have been impacted. I think that Mike's sharing at the beginning was, you know, at this point an overview uh, of the message, a very noble overview. And then I think Bob's sharing was uh, a great introduction, um, a better introduction than I could come up with this morning. And so uh, there's no need for an introduction. There's only need now for uh, the Word of God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us, for your mercy. Thank you for your goodness. That while we are yet sinners, you died for us. yourself to the cross. We are brought low this morning by the power of the gospel, by the power of the cross. We are undone by your mercy. Day after day, seeing how we sin against you, how we scorn your grace, and yet, Father, you are daily providing us with bread, and daily shepherding us, and correcting us, and helping us. And we look forward to the day when we will be with you forever. Standing in your presence to be with you. So we thank you, God, for your grace. And we thank you for this morning. And thank you for your goodness to us. I pray, God, you would give us grace now to receive your word. Ah, and I confess I need grace even just to hold it together. So I pray for your blessing at this time. God, thank you for your goodness. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, I was doing fine until I think I saw Dave. I don't know why. I, just... uh, I saw David West and I just, uh, I was just blown away. And I was sharing, I mean, I shared this with you before, and he shared it this with you, but I think that uh, Dave's testimony just blows me away as I just remember as he shared with me uh, being newly adopted and, you know, mom goes up into the bedroom and looks under the bed and finds all this hoarded food, all this bread and all these things that he'd taken off the dinner table and put under his bed. 
And she realized that he lived in constant fear that he wasn't going to have enough. He lived in constant fear that he was going to be sent away, that he was going to have to go back, that he was going to have to go back to the streets where he grew up and have to fend for himself. And so I think my brother's life is a profound testimony to the me of the gospel, that God will never leave us without, he will never abandon us, he will never leave us destitute. Which is why, uh, as has been said, what we look at this morning is really just an an application and will be a living illustration of the gospel to us. James one twenty seven. James writes, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. You want to just simply begin with a explanation of this text. And I'll just go word by word. The word religion here is a rare word in the New Testament. The word religion can also be translated as worship. And that would be because it calls attention to the external acts carried out by devotees, by religious people. You know, James just used this word in verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. And in that text and in the two other times that this word is used in the New Testament, Colossians 2.18 and Acts 26, both times the word religion is used in a negative way. And in Colossians, Paul uses the term to describe those of false religion, those who worship angels. And in Acts, Paul uses the word religion to describe his own former manner life of Judaism, his own former pursuit of salvation by works, his own self-justification before God which Paul deems in Philippians 3 as scubalon, as rubbish. And so the majority of times, three times out of the four times the New Testament uses this word, the word is used in a negative connotation, as worthless, vain, and empty religion. The only time this word is used in a positive sense is in James chapter 1, verse 27. And to make sure that James connotes the positive use of this word, he uses two adjectives to describe this kind of religion that is acceptable and pleasing in the sight of God. The first adjective is the word pure, this positive statement of what religion must be. And then he uses the adjective undefiled, which is a negative statement about what religion must not be. Pure, obviously meaning clean, and undefiled, meaning unpolluted, unstained, and unsoiled. Now, having studied this text, my conclusion is that the positive picture of what pure religion is, is exemplified by ministering to widows and orphans. And then the negative illustration of what religion must not be, undefiled, is marked by the latter half of verse 27, to keep oneself unstained by the world. So if we cut out the phrase, in the sight of our God and Father, our verse would read, pure and undefiled religion is this. Now note the phrase just for a few moments. <coughs> is this. It may be helpful to know that James here is not making a dogmatic statement. Right. In other words, 
He is not saying Christianity at its very core is a religion of ministry to orphans. He's not making a dogmatic statement. But he is making an extreme statement. Christians, if you will, are the extremists. The news has it backwards. It's not the Taliban. It's not Al-Qaeda. Christians are the extremists. And verse 27 is a verbal exclamation point to let us know that religion is not what men think it is. That's nice white clothes and incense and holy water. But James lets us know that religion at its core, it's hard, dirty, thankless work. James lets us know that true religion is costly. That true religion costs Jesus his life. And that true religion will cost us ours as well. The cost this morning of the kind of religion that James seeks to propagate to us is marked by the word visit. Before I explain the verb visit, though, I want to explain the state of the widows and orphans that we're called to minister to. The Word of God describes the widows and orphans that we're called to serve as being in distress or, as the ESV says, in affliction. The Greek word is used throughout the Bible and is often translated as tribulation and trouble. It's a common biblical word often coinciding with the term persecution. It's the same word that John employs in the book of Revelation to describe the most heinous and incredible destruction and judgment of mankind on the earth, the great tribulation. This word here that James uses describes a distress that is marked not only by the physical sufferings one is enduring, but also by the shock and awe in the core of a person as a result of physical suffering. It's the kind of state one is left in after something traumatic happens. Now, I think that we need only to think of the recent earthquake in China to, to, as a foundation for our understanding of this word affliction. For many, the initial shock in the earthquake was the result of physical pain. Many who survived were pulled out by rescue workers only after days of being buried beneath rubble. At first, after they were pulled out, they were in shock because of severe injuries, because of severe trauma, because of severe affliction, because of lack of water and almost near death from dehydration and starvation. But slowly, the coldness, the wetness, the bleeding went away. Medical attention was given and physical pain was alleviated. And though after a few hours or days, many of those injuries went away, it was the real impact that began to be sensed. As literally hundreds of thousands of Chinese people woke up to the reality that loved ones were never coming back. That husbands, fathers, mothers, wives, children, loved ones were forever gone. And it That kind of pain doesn't just go away. I read of one man whose home was utterly destroyed in the earthquake. And in that rubble lay the dead bodies of his wife and two children. 
Only his third child survived, his little son. But even this little son had suffered such massive trauma to his head that he would never progress in life beyond the phase of a toddler. And so here is this man who wakes up day after day, no wife next to him, two of his children gone, left all alone to care for his own son who will never be able to care for himself. That kind of emotional aftershock, that kind of trauma, is far more devastating than the physical pain. And the weight and pain of such suffering is what the New Testament calls flipsis. It is the undoing and utter shaking up of the inner man. It is an internal earthquake, if you will, as this is the state of those we are called to minister to. James says the types of people, particularly orphans and widows that we are to minister to, are those in distress. That is, they are in dire need of help. A help that is so often overlooked, even by well-meaning Christians. Well, the Scripture says that widows, and I would say especially orphans, are in great distress. They are in dire need of God's compassion. And so, the question arises for us this morning. How has God chosen? How has God ordained to meet the needs of widows and orphans in distress? What is His means to that end? The answer is you. You, me, the believer, is the means to the end of helping these kinds of people that are in the great trauma of soul. You and I are, if you will, the instruments in the Redeemer's hands. And it is in this state that God gives us the direction to visit, to visit. So don't let the simplicity of this word deceive you. The Greek term translated visit here means to look at something, to examine closely, to inspect. The term implies concern and personal contact with the needy. This is uh, the word from the same root as the word episkopos. It's where we get the word episcopalian. You have denominations, you have episcopalian, denomination, presbyterian, whatever. Well, that's where episcopalian derives their term. Episcopalian or episcopos describes the intimate task of a shepherd to care for the church and feed and tend the flock of God. And that is the word that James uses here to exemplify the kind, the type of ministry that we are to exercise towards widows and orphans. I like what um, Marvin Vincent, one commentator, says about this verb. Quote, James strikes a downright blow here at ministry by mere gifts of money. Pure and undefiled religion demands personal contact with the world's sorrow to visit the afflicted and to visit them in their affliction. Now, what is the reason for this kind of extreme religion? What is the reason that James would use this kind of ministry to define Christianity, to define true religion. I believe the reason is because the definition of what God has done for us is extreme. True religion for man means getting down and dirty because true salvation for man meant God coming down and dying. 
the depths of what God calls us to do for others will never touch the extent of what he has done for us. That's what Mike already shared. We are a pathetic tool in the hands of the Redeemer to be an exemplary illustration of our God's mercy to us. At this point, I have not defined to you the most important aspect of this verse. James tells us true religion is defined by what is pleasing in the sight of our God and Father. Now, two words, God and Father. Obviously, God, the sovereign creator, ruler of the universe, the transcendent being, the one who knows all things, who is omnipotent, who Isaiah says he lives in a high and holy place, who Habakkuk says his eyes are too pure to look upon evil, whom David says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Whom King David and King Solomon said that this house is too small for you, it's too little for you, there is no place here that that you may rest. God is a massive, all-consuming fire. And yet, that is not all He is, especially to us. James says here that this religion is concerning not only our God, but our Father. It is this concern for mankind that exemplifies God, not simply as a transcendent sovereign one, but as the intimate father of the redeemed. So if you want to grasp the heart of this text, you will grasp that nothing defines the mighty mercy of God like the term father. Father defines the most infinite and exquisite relationship in all the universe, the relationship between a perfect and holy God and wretched and immoral sinners. So what is encouraging about this text this morning you guys know as well as I do, uh, a bad preacher is one who practices eisegesis, right? He's putting things into the text and trying to use a text and trying to twist a text and make it say things that aren't there. And what encouraged me in this text is I don't have to make a leap to Adoption Sunday because that's what this text is about. It is about adoption. This text is screaming adoption, not Our adoption of orphans, but as Mike said, God's adoption of us. The term father is not redundant. It is explanatory. James is clearly telling us that God's heart, our father's heart, must be our heart. Pure and undefiled religion for us in ministering to widows and orphans is because this is what God has done for us. And the application that we'll get to, the leap that we'll get to, is us becoming fathers to the fatherless is because this is exactly what God has done for us. But what we need to understand here as we bring these two terms together, as we bring these two ideas together, God's adoption of us and our adoption of potential adoption of helpless orphans, is that there is a massive contrast between God's heart for adoption and the world's heart for adoption. In ancient times, particularly the Roman times, adoption was very rare. It was usually only done by those who were very rich 
And it was done by those who had no children of their own, particularly by the rich who had no sons of their own, which which proved a potential problem for them. Because without an heir apparent, all their money would just go back to the government. And their desire would be to pass on their wealth, to pass on what they had to an heir apparent. And so to do so, the only means was adoption. But their idea of adoption was not God's idea of adoption. Their idea of adoption was not to seek out a a small, helpless orphan. It was not to seek out a small, helpless lad. It was instead to employ numerous, young, strapping, young, strong, potential young men. And this, this rich man would employ these young men, and he would feed them, he would clothe them, he would educate them, he would watch them, he would scrutinize them. He would look at every aspect of their life, constantly grading them, constantly scrutinizing them, with an eye always to see which, which son, is, which young man is most worthy. Which young man shows the most potential to become my son? Which young man shows the the most promise to be the one whom I will give my riches to? How infinitely unlike God's adoption of us. Yes? Who of us was worthy? Which son in here, which man in here, which woman in here passed God's test? Who was good enough, wise enough, noble enough, pure enough? Who among us could pass the standards of God in order to be called sons and daughters of God? There was nothing in us that was potential in God's sight. There was nothing in us that caused God to look upon us and say, yeah, That Bob Hahn guy shows some good potential. Maybe I should save him. As the Puritans declared, there was nothing in man that turned God's heart. But there was much in man that turned God's stomach. And in this vile and helpless state, God visited us. He visited us. And by visit, we do not simply mean that he came to us and patted us on the back and even just said to you and me, your sins are forgiven. No, by visit, we mean that God, the son, went to the cross and endured the wrath of God, the father for us. He purchased us with his blood. He reconciled us to the father and the father has given us all that he has given the son. He did not simply visit by stopping by. He visited us and made us his own. He cares for the reprobate and the rebel. He comes to those spiritual widows and spiritual orphans who have been abandoned by their father, the devil, and he buys them with his own blood. And so James 1.27 is telling us very explicitly with the term father, That ministering to orphans and widows is the true religion because it illustrates the truth of the gospel. It illustrates our Father's heart for sinners. The 
Let me, for a moment, just get a little contemporary with our text. I think you'll understand. I think that you will agree. In our, I think in our day and age, particularly in our country, there is uh, a difference maybe between being a widow and an orphan. In our country today, unlike perhaps the New Testament times, uh, being a widow is a lot different. And in the New Testament times, there was no you know, health insurance. There was no life insurance. Few people, if any, had a bank account. That's why Christ taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Right? For us, that's just kind of metaphorical. For them, that was legitimate. You, you had to be worried, will I have food tomorrow? Because if dad wakes up sick and he doesn't go to work, it means you don't eat. And if, and if you wake up and dad doesn't wake up because he's dead, it means you might die too. Because if you have no food, no clothing, and let's say you even have debt. Let's say your dad dies and he leaves some debt. Guess who pays it off? You or mom. Either you go to the dungeon or she goes. Someone's got to pay it off. In today's age, for a woman to lose her husband, she has the potential means of life insurance. She has the potential means to continue in her work or to go back to work or to further her education. But we, I think, as Americans would miss the point, maybe miss the heart, if we think that being an orphan isn't all that bad. I think that it would be a tragedy for us to be deceived into thinking that because the government would step in, take care of an orphan, feed the orphan, clothe the orphan, give the orphan what it needs, that everything's fine. If we buy into that, I think that we have a wrong understanding of what it means to be an orphan and we have a wrong understanding of what God's purpose is, the greatness of the family. I believe that Christian families are 100 times more powerful than any individual Christian testimony. It is one thing to see a reformed life. It is another thing to see a transformed family. The family is a living illustration of the gospel. The family is where unruly, rebellious, ungrateful children are continuously loved and cared for and disciplined and nurtured by their parents regardless of what they do. The family is where a father models the gospel to mother and children by loving his wife as Christ loved the church. The family is where a father imitates Jesus Christ by tirelessly loving and serving his own family. The family is where a life loves and submits to her husband as a reflection of the humble submission of Christ to the Father. The family is where children, through constant correction and biblical discipline, begin to grasp how sinful they are and how desperate they need a Savior. The family and not the government is God's greatest instrument in evangelism. The family and not well-meaning parachurch organizations are the creative context where the gospel is to shine forth the brightest. Now, as Bob said, adoption is not for everyone. And this text here is not particularly saying that Christians are called to adopt. But as is also said, I think that adoption is the greatest fulfillment of what it could mean to visit an orphan. Right? A couple of years ago, I came across this blog and I marked it. And I saved it. And I want to, I just want to read this to you. 
a pastor writing about adoption. He writes, why does America have orphans if it has Christian churches? America has nearly 115,000 orphaned children in foster care waiting to be adopted. Some wonder how this is possible in a country with Christian families. Surely, he writes, there are 115,000 missional families in America. Missional families, for example, embrace the redemptive mission of God and practice true religion in their local communities. Missional Christians in America could eliminate the foster care system tomorrow if we would stop shooting up with the American dream in order to get high on a lame life, live for the sake of comfort and ease. As a matter of fact, the Bible has over 40 verses mandating God's people to look after orphans and the fatherless for various reasons. There are about 224 million Christians in the United States, supposedly. So why are there 115,000 orphans in a country that has 225 million professing Christians? He says, let's break this down further. The Washington Times reports that there are about 65 million evangelicals in America. So again, why are there 115,000 orphans in America's foster care system? Does this mean that there are 65 million people missing huge sections of their Bibles? Would someone please alert Crossway and Zondervan? If their church is not cultivating an ethos that practices true religion, it may not be missional at all. It may be dying or sinking into a consumeristic entertainment quicksand where people come to have their felt needs stroked. While not all Christians are gifted or equipped for taking in orphans, it's pretty convicting that 65 million American evangelicals can't rescue 115,000 kids from an unstable hell. If the pagans in our neighborhoods aren't struck by how our churches are applying the word of God to the needy, it's possible that we are not the real deal yet. May we all pray that our churches are soon as mature as James commends. End quote. So as has already been you know, enunciated this morning by both Mike and Bob, if God has ordained that earthly adoption be a blazing illustration of heavenly adoption, what could be more radical to a testimony of the gospel than by taking a stranger's unwanted child and making it your own? I think that we must believe that the world is startled by these kinds of actions. Can you think of something that is more evangelistic can you think of something that is more parallel to the gospel? These are just a few parallels between our adoption of orphans and God's adoption of us. Sinners are unloved and helpless. So are orphans. We did not seek after God. Orphans did not seek after you. God saves us not because we are beautiful in His sight. And we don't adopt orphans because they are perfect or pleasing to look at. Sinners were thankless and oblivious to all that God has done for them. An adopted child, especially an infant, is completely oblivious to the great mercy earthly parents have shown her. Sinners are oblivious to the hell they have been saved from. Many children who are adopted are oblivious to the future sadness they were rescued from. 
Christians were the offspring of another father, the devil, and yet are given all the rights and privileges of a natural son. Orphans were fathered by some other man and woman, and yet are loved as if they were the offspring of your own body. Adoption was infinitely costly to the father. Earthly adoption is extremely costly. Can't speak from personal experience at this point. But I think that those who have adopted and even those who have not experienced such things yet will soon agree that is a great cost upon a family to adopt another child. Lots of money, potential agony. If you foster or adopt, you face the, the constant potential that you could lose the child. If you adopt, period, you face the the potential that at some point when that child comes to understand that he or she is adopted, you go through that whole time of where that child wrestles with who they are and and why they were unloved by their original parents and, and what does it mean that they're adopted and the potential that they could walk away, leaving you with an incredible heartache and agony. And yet what could be more illustrative of the gospel? What could be more illustrative of the mercy of Christ than adoption? Adoption is a living, breathing floodlight projecting and illuminating the truth of the gospel to a blackened, selfish world. So at this point, we have been just general. So let me finish with some specifics for our for us as a church and as individual believers, right? These are uh, exhortations slash applications from James one twenty seven. First of all, the gospel should drive us to adoption, not guilt. The gospel should drive us to adoption and not guilt. The grace of God and the cross of Christ should be a far greater motivation towards adoption than someone on TV with a bunch of pictures of emaciated children. In other words, it should not take such images, it should not take take such prodding, it should not take such maneuvers of guilt to motivate us to think about this kind of ministry. The gospel is enough. The gospel is more than enough. The picture God holds up before us to motivate us to adoption is not some helpless child that is near death. The picture that God holds us up as an illustration of adoption is us. That slideshow should have contained pictures of every single man and woman at Cornerstone Bible Church. Every single one of you is adopted. Every single one of you was abandoned and was orphaned and was rescued by the mercy of God. That is the motivation. That is why James calls us to pure and undefiled religion. So, do not be motivated by guilt. Do not be motivated by guilt. Be motivated by the gospel. Secondly, don't be deceived. Uh, Maybe that's just too strong of terminology. 
But be careful in thinking that because nations have orphanages and foster care systems, that our work has been alleviated or minimized. I would say, in some ways, on the contrary. In some ways, it has only made it more difficult. It's the Christian's duty to care for orphans. It's our duty to perform this service. It's our joy. It's our privilege. Though the government has done a good service, at the same time, there is a lot of red tape to go through. It is extremely costly to adopt. We would think particularly of international adoption, where sadly it seems that most countries would rather make a lot of money and get you to think that they're doing you a favor by letting you purchase one of their kids. But the reality is, if if we don't, if we don't step in, if we don't provide the ministry of mercy, most of those children will lie helpless and unwanted in a crib. They'll grow up extremely bitter, angry, and destitute. So as Mike said, this ministry, in particular adoption, it is the nearest means to save the soul of a child. It is the nearest means, it is the closest that we can get to the finger of God to rescue these helpless sinners. So thirdly, third, this is perhaps more specific, If you believe in the sovereignty of God, then you will acknowledge that God has ordained that some children be abandoned so that some children can be adopted. You have to believe that if you believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. He has ordained that some children actually be abandoned by their sinful parents so that they can be adopted by believers who can minister the truth of the gospel. What that means for some of you here is some of you have children in this world and you don't even know it yet. You have children who are waiting for you to go and get them. They have already been born and they are simply waiting for you to figure out that they're your children. I want to be very sensitive here. But would you allow me, would you allow me to gently say that God has ordained some of you to not be able to have your own natural children so that you might be able to minister to those who have no parents? If you believe in the sovereignty of God, and if God has presently ordained you to not be able to have children, you can joyfully apply and say, in the sovereignty of God, the, a potential application of our inability to have children is that He wants us to adopt a child who is unable to have parents. I would think that there is a unique connection between all parents and their adopted children But perhaps there is even a more unique grasp of the power of adoption between the child who has no parents and the parents who could have no children. God has sovereignly ordained that some parents cannot have children of their own in order to experience a unique and blessed joy in adoption. Fifthly, let me speak to 
the brothers. Let me speak to men just for a moment. Now, this is uh, perhaps too stereotypical, and I could be wrong, and that's fine. But maybe you would agree with me that it's at least more common percentage-wise that for this topic, the wife will be the one to bring it up first. The wife will be the one, the woman will be the one to address the subject of James 1.27. Now, I think there would be some natural reasons for that. Right? God has wired women, right? The women give birth to children. I think that in God's plan, women are most often more compassionate. They are more often more moved by the plight and by the needs of little children. And so, therefore, it would seem only natural in some sense that, that a, a wife would bring up the needs first to her husband. But let me burden the men. Let me privilege you men. The heart of our father is adoption. Theologically, what this means is that Christ is not the one who instituted adoption. The father was. Therefore, you as husbands should exemplify the leadership of God in the family by replicating the Father's heart. This means that the duty to think and pray about how to lead your family in obeying this text, whatever that may mean, falls upon you. It is a maternal instinct that a woman would want to adopt, but it is a godly man's instinct to want to be like his father. And so I encourage men, I encourage you, Husbands, even fathers, you talk about this with your wives. You personally pray about this with God. You ask God, Lord, what does it mean for us to obey this text? Which leads to our final application exhortation. As we have already said, to visit orphans does not mean adoption. But it does mean some type of ministry. So it is, therefore, it falls upon us, all of us, to apply this in our particular, unique way. So we are now asking the question, how would God have us practice this kind of religion before Him? The greatest application is adoption, but it is not the only application. So we must, as a church, take very seriously and ask our God, Lord, how do I obey this? What do you have of us? What would you ask of us? And so before your mind goes in a thousand other directions, before you perhaps go home and before you perhaps uh, try to do something out of guilt or even do something good and yet do it before the hand of God, before God is working and moving. I think the final and most pertinent application at this moment, at this moment is first to pray and ask God, God, what would you have us do? Right. So I will pray. I will conclude. And then for you over this week to begin praying and seeking and asking, Lord, what would you have us do? to serve you, to minister to you, to glorify you, and to be the greatest earthly illustration of the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you again 
we are indeed so blessed. And this is love, not that we loved you, but that you first loved us and sent your Son to be a propitiation for our sins. And that now we are sons and daughters of God. The full rights and privileges of an heir as if we were your natural born. As if we were. Even as blasphemous as it may sound. As if we were Jesus Christ. For you to treat us as if we were like your only begotten unique Son. No good thing will you withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing will you withhold from those who are your children, which is why we pray out to you, Abba, Father, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. So, Lord, we thank you. We bow before you. We are your slaves. We are your debtors. And yet, most profoundly of all, we are your children. Thank you again for your kindness. Lead us and guide us, O God. Direct us individually. Direct us as families. Direct us as husbands and as fathers. Direct us, Lord, in what you would have us do with your word. In your name we pray.